Genesis chapter 3, verses 13 to 24. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Um, let me go ahead and pray for us and uh, we'll get going. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for, for your word. The fact that, um, that it's alive, that's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and that when we immerse ourselves in it, when we preach from it, when we sit under its authority, you go to work. You have the power to soften our hearts. You have the power to transform us. You have the power to bring us hope. And I pray that in the midst of these 14-ish verses, uh, that even though it's got a lot to do with curses, that you would bring us hope because there is hope to be found here. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. A lot of people like to use uh, those online websites like Ancestry.com. Like, they're appealing to us. Maybe some of you guys have even used them to figure out, you know, who your ancestors are, uh, where you come from. And I think a part of that is there's something about knowing our history that helps us understand who we are. Like, we, we find value and worth in being caught up in a story, uh, and, it, and it helps us understand the story that we are living out. That's what like the history, the ancestry of family does. It helps us understand who we are, why we are, and where we are. 
And Genesis is a family history. I think it's important to remember that as Moses is writing these chapters of Genesis, God's people have just recently escaped slavery from Egypt. And they're sort of between Egypt, slavery, and this promised land that they have yet to see. And so he's writing the story in that context, in the context of like, imagine yourself as a pilgrim. Every morning you wake up and you pack up your tent and you gather your family and you walk. And at the end of the day, well, at the beginning of your day, you have no idea where you're going to pitch your tent that night. And then you do, you pitch your tent, you go back to sleep and you wake up and you do it all over again. You are a pilgrim with no home, with no history, because they were slaves. There's, there's no ancestry or history for them. And God comes to Moses and he gives them their family story. He helps them understand that they didn't start as slaves in Egypt, but rather they've got these great, great, great grandparents, times like a lot, named Adam and Eve, and that is where their story starts. It started in a garden, and they're headed back to a kind of paradise. Genesis is not only the family story of God's people in their escape from Egypt, it's also our story. It's our ancestry, because ultimately we are pilgrims of Eden, we are alive between Eden and a future paradise that is yet to come. And so this story helps us understand who we are, where we are, and why we are the way that we are. And in this section of the story, what we're discovering is the fall, like why everything is the way it is. It goes from like the first two chapters goes from all of these blessings. God, God sp spoke and it was good. God spoke and it was good. God spoke and it was good. Then now in these verses, he says over and over again, pain and curse, pain and curse. I think it's five times in these 10, 14 verses where, the, where it says pain and curse. It's like a complete radical shift from those first two chapters. And C.S. Lewis points out one of the first curses that, that God pronounces is on the serpent. Uh, and if we misread it, you know, you, you could easily read it as like, oh, that's the reason why snakes don't have legs, which is a very childlike way of reading God's word. It's a very childlike way of reading fairy tales for that matter. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this quote where like, we cannot read fairy tales like children. Children read them for like their surface level value. He says that fairy tales are there because they have a deeper, richer meaning to be discovered. And I think in these verses, we find that ultimately this curse towards the serpent is not like, hey, by the way, here's why they lost their legs and most of us are afraid of snakes. This is more about this divide between two kinds of offspring, between the offspring of the snake and the offspring that will one day be born of Eve. And ultimately, what God is doing through the writings of this warrior poet Moses is showing us that there's two ways in this world to live. There's the way of the serpent and there's the way of the savior. And you and I decide what kind of life we are going to participate in, whether it is the way of the serpent 
or the way of the Savior. What's interesting about this is that in these verses, although it's a lot of cursing, there's also an incredible amount of grace put on display, which is interesting to me because the Bible ultimately takes these 10 verses and on them build the whole idea of God's judgment and God's wrath and God's eternal damnation through hell. All of that, like these 10 verses is what, what all that is built off of. And yet in the midst of these 10 verses is also the first signs of how God is going to save us. Did you guys catch that while we were reading it? The mention of Christ, it's in there. And we'll get to that in just a second. We're going to go over three things. The curse of the family, the curse of the earth, and the curse of Christ. First, the curse of the family in Genesis 3, uh, verse 16. By the way, I, I don't have uh, slides for us today. I'd love to blame someone else, but it was definitely my fault. It was a busy, busy week. Um, so if you have your Bibles... Uh, or you have a Bible app on your phone, if you don't mind, go ahead and take it out now and, and open up to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what it says. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. I will bear children, I'm sorry, you will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. I think it's important to recognize here that God is like not throwing random balls of wrath at God's people. He's not just like drumming up all these ways, you know, getting creative about how he's going to punish us and throw wrath at us. Rather, this curse, this life is the life that Adam and Eve chose for themselves because they chose the way of the serpent. They chose to ultimately be children of wrath. And God is essentially going, man, okay, you want it this way. You want to be your own gods. You want to lord over your own land. You want to do this without me. And he hands them over. He says, okay, here's what it's going to look like. Here's what you've asked for. And this is exactly what the rest of the scripture tells us. Romans 1 tells us that God ultimately, that the hell and the wrath and the judgment that the scriptures talk about is ultimately God handing us over to our desires Ultimately, God gives every single person who's ever lived the desires of their deepest part of their hearts. And if the deepest part of your heart is life without God, is being your own Lord, then this is what it looks like. He hands that to you. He gives you the desires of your heart. And this outlines what that looks like. The first one is this curse on marriage. And I want to point out like one of the main things here is the biggest issue facing your marriage or if you're single, your future marriage or if, if marriage is, is in your life, uh, in your plans or in God's plans for you. The biggest issue with marriage is not the culture. It's not an overemphasized sexuality because of pornography. It's not because of the laws that are created and who can get married. The ultimately, ultimately, the biggest issue, the biggest challenge that marriage faces today is our own hearts. 
Again, the first chapter says, be fruitful and multiply. That's the way of the Savior. And now it goes from that to her labor pains will be intensified. There's going to be a struggle raising kids, and now there's enmity between the husband and the wife. This is the cosmic struggle of marriage because we choose the way of the serpent. You know, um, I've been out of the dating game for about 12 years now. Kelly's like, you better, better say that. As she pulls out her switchblade. Uh, some of you are like, does she have a switchblade? She probably does. Uh, she's a savage. I, I, used to, like, I used to love scaring my wife, you know, like turn off the lights and like hide, hide in a closet and then like scare her. And uh, like three years ago, she's like, I'm going to start carrying my gun around in the house. Like, she's a savage, dude. <laughs> what, what wife? You know what I mean? If I end up gone someday, like, honestly, the first person that you should question is my wife. <laughs> Also, I probably will deserve it because of these sermons. <laughs> uh, I have been out of the dating game for a while, but I do have a lot of conversations with single people um, because of work and whatever the case. And man, like marriage and dating is just, it's in a very different place. Like first off, we are just, it's hard because we are a disconnected people right? Like we, we see each other, we interact with each other less often. There's social media keeping us at home, remote, remote work keeping us at home, less church attendance keeping us at home. There's the reality that like going off to college and meeting your future spouse is for younger people, not necessarily a thing because you now do college at home and online. So the opportunity to meet somebody is just increasingly difficult for singles, not to mention, well, what that also does is require people to ultimately do online dating. And online dating is a good thing. There's many people here, and I know many other people who've met their spouse because of online dating, and so praise God for that. It, is, it can be a gift from the Lord to us, but it can also be a way of turning relationships into like an e-commerce because ultimately, you're, you're like, and, and whether you do this online or in person, a lot of the times what single people are doing now is like, it's like finding a spouse is like looking through the ingredients of cereal boxes in, a, in an online, you know, in a grocery store. It's like, who is the person that's going to make me feel empowered, make me feel like I'm in control, going to give me all of my desires and all of my wants and all of my needs? And the weird thing about that is that the second you feel empowered, by being able to make choices, deep down inside, there's also this insecurity that starts to develop because you know that there's thousands of other people passing you up because you don't have the ingredients that they're looking for. And so ultimately, like dating has become this, this like consumeristic endeavor in which people commoditize each other and look for the person that's ultimately going to satisfy them. Today's views on marriage also looks more like a partnership than a covenant. As Kathy Keller put it in the book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, she says that marriage now is a sexual contract for self-satisfaction. Can you bring me my coffee, please, Kelly? She's all nine after those comments. <laughs> she threatens me. 
marriage, that's Kathy Keller. Marriage is a sexual contract for self-satisfaction. Marriage is, the narrative is all about me. I need to find somebody who's going to accept me, affirm my goals, fulfill my sexual desires. And ultimately, the problem with that is that it puts a lot of pressure on marriage because you're sort of demanding that somebody fully accepts you for who you are. And the problem with that is that even if you found somebody that totally accepted you for who you are right now, the reality is we are always a changing people. No one, like we call ourselves human beings, but actually it would make more sense. The only person that's actually being is God. He's never changing. The rest of us are more like human becomings. We're always changing. We're always conforming. We're always different. Kelly's, you know, in 12 years, been married to three or four different Oscars, all increasingly more handsome. Nope. Uh, And so if you do find someone who's like, I love you for who you are, well, you're not going to stay that person, right? And, and they're not going to stay that person. But the thing is, is that marriage is not meant to be a social contract of self-satisfaction, but a covenant between one man and one woman and their creator, Additionally, this curse talks about men in marriage. And ultimately what happens is that we turn away from God's designated roles for us. It says again, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Here's what this is saying, is that men will have a tendency to make an idol out of power. He will rule over you. You know, I've talked to men in the church who would categorize themselves as complementarian, which is understanding a biblical distinction between men and women in the roles in the church. And often the joke when you're at a men's Bible study or, you know, a, a men's retreat is you'll, you'll hear something like, oh, yeah, you know, we're the leaders. The, the women got the short end of the stick. Listen, that joke can only be made in the context of misunderstanding God's role for a man to be a leader. Because when our framework is that of leadership adopted from the culture and not Christ, then we see leadership as some sort of like seniority, some sort of thing that's better than. But Jesus's views of leadership is not one that rules over, not one that like, you know, is the veto vote in all of these situations. Here's what he says in Matthew uh, chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. Listen to how this is applied to leadership. Listen to the difference between a cultural view of leadership and God's intended design for leadership. It says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That is God's framework for biblical leadership. And then... In Ephesians chapter 5, he applies that to our marriages. He says, husbands, love your wives 
just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Can you guys, reading Ephesians 5, it dawned on me for the first time, like reading Ephesians 5 in context of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, or especially 3, you realize that Paul has Adam in mind. Like Adam, you know, when God comes to him and is like, where are you? What's going on? He's like, it was that woman you gave me. It's her fault. Look at her sin. This is all because of her. And then in Ephesians 5, Paul's talking. He's like, don't be like that. But he like, Christ, cover her up protect her, cleanse her, serve her, love her. It's not about self-satisfaction and self-justification and self-service. It's about sacrifice and love and commitment. That is what biblical leadership looks like in, the, in, in our homes and in the world. Instead of throwing her under the bus, God, through Jesus Christ, sacrifices himself for his bride and invites men to lead in a servant-like manner, just the same. Under the lordship of man, we become ego-driven, power-hungry nimrods who wants to slay, conquer, and serve ourselves. That's a quote. I don't remember who said it. I would never call you a nimrod, but he did. Uh, Looking at women in marriage, God also said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband. What does that mean? Listen, only 66 times, sorry, only two times in 66 books of the Bible does it use this phrase, your desire will be for something. And the other time, that second time, it's actually used in chapter four of Genesis by Moses again. And it says it like this, if you do what is right, this is him talking, this is uh, Adam and Eve's son, Cain. God is talking to Cain and he says to him this, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Here it is. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's telling us two things. This curse, this way of the serpent means two things. One, that there will be this tendency for women to find a false hope in the potential of having a spouse. Kathy Keller says it like this. She says, the lie that many believe is this. I am not a person unless I have a relationship. That's the lie that Kathy Keller would say many single women would struggle with. And Timothy Keller, in that same book, The Meaning of Marriage, he, he, he mentions this conversation that he has with this young woman. I think she's in high school. And she's insecure and upset because she's like one of the only ones without a boyfriend. She might have been in college. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he like gets into the gospel and how Jesus loves her and through the cross accepts her and adores her and finds her beauty and how she can find identity and worth in that and how he can be your husband. And in his mind, he's like, dude, I'm killing it, you know. And, uh, and he gets done and this young lady goes, I know, but what's the point if a boy won't like me? And the point that they're making in that story is that there is that tendency to believe 
We are not of value or worth until we are in a relationship. But there's a second thing that this desire for means. It means we are setting ourselves up for a power struggle. That, that have you, the desire for you, is this other sense of control. It's like, it's like basically telling us this. In the way of the serpent, as children of wrath, husbands will want to control you, manipulate you, boss you around, but you must rule them, control them, manipulate them, boss them around. As D.A. Carson says, in the wake of the fall, the woman desires to have her husband precisely now to control, and he rules over her with a certain kind of brutality. This is the way of the serpent, the wrath of children, the world we desired, a world without God. These are the things that we will struggle with. And I think it's important to realize that the rejection of God's role for men and women in the home is not a rejection because we see examples of it failing. Ultimately, it's a rejection because of the desires of our own heart because we all wanna be our own gods, because we all wanna be our own lords, because we wanna rule in our own ways. The way of the serpent sets marriage up for this cosmic curse. And the struggle we experience in our relationships and the strife we witness in our parents' relationships growing up is because the curse has taken hold of our own heart, is because we are determined to desire to follow the ways of the serpent. It also talks about this curse on the earth. This is the second curse, the curse of the earth. It goes on, verses 17 to 18. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the fields. Do you notice that it says, because of you? Again, God is not just like throwing random haymakers in a wrathful moment towards man. Rather, as I said earlier, he is handing us over to our desires. Uh, you know, years ago during the AIDS epidemic, a conservative, uh, air quote, Christian leader got, got on TV and, and said that like AIDS was God's way of punishing the homosexual community. And then when Hurricane Katrina hit, um, Pat Robertson went on TV and talked about the fact that this was like God's wrath on uh, America because of abortion. <sighs> the curse is not like God just being like, I'm gonna make life miserable for you. Like to, to, to position it in that kind of way, the way those two leaders did, is a misunderstanding of what's going on here. The curse is not, here's God just throwing a bunch of haymakers, making life difficult, punishing us in that way. Rather, these curses is because the original design of the universe has been broken by us. I've heard it explained, it's like, it's like cogs in a watch. 
You know, we, in, in God's created order, we were cogs in this great design, this beautiful creation, and everything was working so well, but then we decide to unhinge ourselves. And when that one cog removes itself, the rest of the watch begins to break. The springs get loose, the other cogs start getting wiggly, and the watch stops working. And that's exactly what Romans 8 says. It says that the entire world, that all of creation is groaning in anticipation. It's paining for the return of the Savior because something has gone wrong and the world knows that it's our fault. There's this great quote by George Whitfield. He says, haven't you ever noticed that when you come near the animals, they growl at us, they bark at us, the birds screech and fly away. Do you know why? They know that we have a quarrel with their master. See, the world knows, the creation knows that we're that cog that got loose, that we have a quarrel with its creator, with its master. And I think that it's inerrant in us all that we know the world isn't the way it was meant to be. You know, We've got family members that are fighting for their lives, losing a fight over cancer. We've got friends who have lost loved ones. We've got a world in decay. And there's nothing satisfying about the alternative view of the world. It's like, well, you know, it's just bubbling goop. It's just survival of the fittest. Move on. Get over it. This is your moment. You're gone in a blink of an eye. Not, there, there's nothing that brings you comfort in the midst of pain and suffering. Why? Because in our heart of hearts, we also know that the world is not the way that it was meant to be. The cogs have gotten loose. And our, our pain, our sadness, the reason why it hurts so much when things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, when people are suffering and dying, is because we know that the world is not the way it was meant to be. We too join all of creation groaning in anticipation for our Savior to return. And here's the thing, the mo most broken part, the worst curse of it all actually doesn't come until verse 22. The, the, the sort of the deal breaker here is not just these curses, but it's the fact that God pulls back. Or better yet, that God removes Adam and Eve from his presence. The Lord God said, since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he that's uh, hyperbole, it's like sarcasm, by the way. He must not reach out, take from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. The world is the way that it is because Adam and Eve wanted to be their own gods. They wanted to do life outside the lordship of God. And when we understand that this is our heritage, then we understand that we too have this inerrant desire to be lords of our own lives, to be gods of our own kingdoms, to do things our way or the way of the serpent. And thankfully, 
thankfully, in the midst of all of this, there is also this hope. Listen again. I, this is what the verses had said if you missed it before, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Here it is. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians uh, call this proto-evangelion. It's the, it's the first mention of the gospel. In the midst of these verses of a curse, God gives us the first gospel. And this first gospel is, uh, it's not the only time that he mentions it. So in Numbers 21, so here's this, this he's basically telling like, look, there's going to be someone's going to come from Eve's descendant, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And he continues, Moses continues to use this, this like analogy, this word picture, picture of some sort of salvation with a serpent and a savior. And in Numbers 21, I've, I've talked about this before in our sermon on love. In Numbers 21, it's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It's so weird. It's like three or four verses long. Basically, what ends up happening is God's people have turned their back on God. Not much long after this, after Moses wrote this, God's people turns their back on God, and God sends snakes, poisonous snakes, into their encampment. And they're biting them, and people are getting sick and dying. And God's people goes to Moses and they're like, ask God for forgiveness. Like, bring us a cure. So God asks God for a cure and God tells him, I want you to make a, a, a serpent out of bronze and I want you to put it on a pole. And if you get cursed, if you get bit, all you have to do is look at that pole, pole and you will be healed. In other words, put the symbolism of my wrath, of the curse on this pole, look and you will be healed. And then in John 3.16, one of our favorite verses leading up to that, we get a more clear picture of why this weird, obscure way in which God intends to heal his people. It's Jesus talking to Nicodemus, explaining the gospel to him, and Nicodemus would have been a man that had the entire Old Testament memorized by the time he was 14 years old. So you know that he knows about this story about the serpent on the pole. And in this conversation, Jesus is trying to explain the gospel to him. And he says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. So Everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Isn't John 16 like so robust in context of what's going on in the Old Testament? In other words, that man who was gonna crush the head of the serpent was Jesus Christ. And in order to crush the head of the serpent, not only did he have to be bitten, but he had to die on a cross. He who knew no sin became sin. What Jesus is saying to us is that we are living in this, in this way that is the way of the serpent, but all we have to do is to look to Christ, to look up at him, the curse on the cross, and see that he has taken on the fullness of the wrath of God, that all of this curse is bound up in his work so that we could be forgiven and set free, so that instead of being children of wrath, instead of choosing the way of the serpent, 
we can choose the way of our Savior. And do you guys realize that that means that God is inviting us not just back into the garden that is to come, but to start cultivating a garden here on earth as it is in heaven. Through our relationships, we can choose to be children of the serpent or children of the Savior. The way we interact in the world, we can choose to be children of the serpent or children of the Savior. We have that opportunity. And when we fail, and we will fail, when we fail, we look. We look to Jesus. We look to his finished work. And we rest knowing that he has taken on the fullness of the wrath of God on our behalf. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.